We're going to start this morning a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I want to read something that Paul wrote in what we call the first letter to uh, the church in Corinth, and it's found in chapter 6. You don't need to turn to that particular uh, text, but I want to read it to you. Paul is talking about the condition from which uh, people in the church in Corinth had been sanctified and justified. And uh, he indicates that uh, in that number were fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and effeminate and homosexuals and thieves and covetous and drunks and revilers and swindlers. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's an interesting list to think through. This church was composed of people who were ex-fornicators, ex-idolaters, ex-adulterers, ex-homosexuals. I'd like to ask you a question, and uh, you be uh, honest with yourself. How many of you can think back on your past life before you came to Christ, and you would have to say, I'm uh, one of those. I'm an ex-swindler. I'm an ex-fornicator. I'm an ex-adulterer. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm an ex-reviler uh, or drunkard. How many of you can say that was true of you? Put your hands up. Ah, oh, that's great. That's great. A friend of mine uh, asked that question some years ago in a, in a congregation, and another friend of mine was there who had just become a Christian, and it was his first time he'd ever been in a church service. And as he looked around at all the hands that went up, he said, Man, these are my kind of people. <laughs> and uh, that's what we would have to say about these uh, wonderful people in Corinth. They're, they're our kind of people. We can... We can identify with them. We understand. Now, uh, I want to take a little bit of time this morning and talk about the uh, background of these uh, people that made up the church in Corinth. Now, introductory messages, background messages, can sometimes be very boring. And I subscribe to the principle that it's a sin to bore people with the Word of God, so I don't want to do that this morning. But uh, I would like to take just a few minutes and try to sketch in a little bit of what their history was like and uh, what the church was like in the city of Corinth. And in order to do so, we need to go back to uh, Luke's history of the church in the uh, Acts of the Apostles and read his, uh, his uh, story of how this church was uh, founded. Uh, I should tell you that uh, when Paul came to Corinth, his ministry was a disaster. He had been in Thessalonica for a while, which is way up in the northern part of what we call Greece today. It was then in the uh, province of Macedonia, and he had, he had uh, planted a church there, and then some people ran him out of town, and he went down to Berea, which is a little town just to the south of Philippi, and uh, he he planted a church there, and he was run out of town there. And then he came on down to Athens, and that's where he had his encounter with those hard-headed philosophers in, in Athens. And things didn't go extremely well there, and he came down to Corinth. 
And he says, when he writes this uh, letter to the people in, in Corinth, that he came in weakness and, and in fear. He was very uncertain of himself. And he was in a very difficult situation. Corinth was a, was a magnificent city in that, in that day. It had, been, uh, it had been a Greek city-state about 400 years before Paul came to that, uh, that city. It, it had been founded. And it was a center of, of learning, though at this time it was a Roman colony. It was established by Julius Caesar as a Roman colony about 100 years before Paul visited the city. But it still retained a lot of the flavor of, of a Greek city-state, huge uh, universities and libraries, a great center of, of learning and literature and art and, and culture, uh, enormous uh, 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 monumental architecture. And it was the center of Roman government. Uh, Greece was not a nation as such then. It, it was made up of three different provinces, Trace, way up in the north, and then Macedonia and Achaia in the south. And Corinth was the capital of the province of Achaia and the seat of the Roman federal uh, government. And so it was into that situation that Paul came, looking back, thinking of some of his experiences uh, in, in Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi, and uh, he began to preach there. Now let's uh, pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 18. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, Claudius was the Roman emperor at the time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Jews had been expelled from Rome. There's one example here of a very early reference to Christianity in uh, the histories of that period. Suetonius, who was a Roman historian, refers to the fact that the Jews were expelled from Rome because of a riot at the instigation of one Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. And most scholars think that uh, uh, Suetonius simply didn't understand the name Christ and that this uh, riot happened because of the Christians beginning to preach Christ in the city of Rome, which upset the Jews and uh, precipitated a riot. And uh, Claudius had expelled all of the uh, Jews from Rome. And Aquila uh, and his uh, wife Priscilla came down to, uh, to Corinth as a, as a result of that expulsion. And in verse 3, because he was of the same trade, that is Paul, he stayed with them and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. They were leather workers. They made leather coats and leather uh uh, tents and uh, curtains and those uh, sorts of things. Every young Jewish boy was required to learn a trade. And though Paul was by training a scholar, he was a rabbi, he also had a skill. He could work with his hands. And uh, he plied that uh, trade when he came to Corinth. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now there's a... Uh, a uh, translation, a very early uh, manuscript of uh, the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles that inserts in here a line, inserting the name of Jesus. Now, it probably does not belong in the text, that statement doesn't, but it gives us some idea of what Paul was doing, some memory that people of that time had of the way Paul went about preaching the gospel. He'd go into a synagogue and uh, he would take the Old Testament and he would read these uh, uh, wonderful uh, prophetic uh, utterances, the predictions of the coming of Christ. 
And he would insert the name of Jesus wherever it was uh, appropriate. And in that way, he preached the gospel to both Jews and Greeks who were attending the synagogue. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When these two men came down from Macedonia, they brought with them a gift from the church in Philippi. And Paul no longer had to work. He didn't have to support himself, so he was set free uh, to spend his time teaching the word and uh, testifying to, to Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus. Now, this is the fellow that we know in later history by the name Gaius. Gaius was his first name, Gaius Titius Justus. And this is the man that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians. We'll, we'll see uh, that name appearing later. And he was one of the men that Paul baptized in uh, Corinth. But he opened up his, uh, his house. He was the host to Paul and, and the church. They were in the synagogue. They were expelled from the synagogue. And so they went right next door to a home that belonged to this nobleman, Gaius. Apparently was a very wealthy man, had a very large home. And, and uh, they met in his uh, living room. And, the, and Paul taught them week after week. And the church began to grow and, and flourish. And Crispus, verse 8, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Both Jews and Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, were coming to Christ. And the church continued to grow. And, and Paul uh, began to attract the attention of uh, certain uh, elements within the community that opposed him. And he, he, he was frightened. And uh, in the middle of the night, he received a vision, verse 9. And the Lord said to him, don't be afraid any longer. Literally, stop being afraid, Paul. I have many people in this town. And Paul, strengthened by that vision, went on uh, preaching. And the church uh, continued to grow. And uh, verse 11, Luke tells us, he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, that's how to grow a church. If you want to know uh, how to see a church grow... The way to do it is simply impart to people the, the Word of God. I have uh, often said that there are really only two things that God calls us to do. One is to befriend people, and the other is to impart the Word. And everything else that we do grows out of those two uh, elements, those two uh, uh, parameters, fixed reference points of ministry. And that's what Paul did. He just faithfully taught the Word and as people responded to the word, they grew and they began to tell their friends and their friends met Christ and their friends began to grow. And the church apparently was very, very large and uh, it attracted the attention of, of, of dissonant uh, elements. And in verse 12, they preferred charges against uh, Paul while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. He was the governor of that uh, province. The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. If you visit uh, Corinth today, and you go down to the marketplace, you can see the Bema, the uh, judgment seat where Gallio uh, sat. As I said, uh, Corinth was the seat of, of uh, Roman government in, uh, in that province. Uh, Gallio was a uh, Roman official, the governor 
of the city of uh, Corinth. Very famous man, as a matter of fact. His father was Seneca, whom some of you may have heard of. He was a famous senator from Rome, a, uh, a, a diplomat. And he had a son, whom he also named Seneca, who was a very famous philosopher. Well, Seneca the philosopher was the brother of, uh, of this uh, Gallio. And uh, uh, one of the ways we're able to date Paul so precisely is that there's some, there are some inscriptions with Gallio's name and the actual dates when he was the governor of, of Corinth. And so we know exactly when Paul was there. He was there about uh, AD 52, if it makes any, any difference to anyone. But... Uh, uh, this, uh, this man uh, was the one who heard these charges that were brought uh, uh, before his, uh, his court. That's a very serious thing because his ruling could determine the, the future of, of the church. And notice what happened. Uh, charges were, uh, were brought uh, uh, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, Roman government established certain religions as what they call licit religions. And Judaism was one of them. You could be a practicing Jew in the Roman Empire. There are certain other mystery religions and cults and sects that were, that were authentic uh, uh, religions. And they could be followed without any harassment from the government. Judaism was one of them. But uh, these Jews claimed that um, Paul was... Uh, was acting contrary to the law, and Paul was about to open his mouth to defend himself when Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to, to put up with you to hear your case. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a, a judge of these matters. And uh, he drove them away from the from the judgment seat. Now, this is a very interesting decision because this became the precedent on which all other Roman officials acted from this point on. What Gallio said is Christianity is Jewish. You see that? He's saying that Christianity is just uh, the natural outworking of Judaism. He was familiar enough with the Jewish religion and he was familiar enough with the with Paul's preaching that he put the two together and he saw that uh, Christianity was just a part of Judaism and it was the logical outcome of the Old Testament and he legitimatized the, the Christian religion. And that was the precedent that all other Roman governors acted on until the time of Nero. Nero's wife, we understand, was not a believer and she instigated uh, she was the instigator of uh, the change in the policy. She got Nero to change the, uh, the uh, decision, and that's when persecution broke out against the church. But for a span of about 10 years, the church had absolute freedom. They could go anywhere in the city of Corinth. They could stand on the street corners. They could preach. They could openly evangelize. They, they were free from any harassment from, or any persecution from the Roman government. Now... Uh, uh, after he drove them from the judgment seat, verse 17, they, that is the Gentiles, the, the Greeks and the Romans in the city, took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Sosthenes was probably the man that brought the charges. And uh, the uh, Romans were so... Uh, uh, tired of the riots and the troubles that had been caused, that they, they beat Sosthenes up. 
Now, what, what that did is Paul's or Luke's point in putting this in the story is to show that not only the Roman officials, but the populace were themselves on Paul's side. And so the church had uh, freedom. Now, um, after this, uh, Paul remained many days longer. And uh, then he took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. And Centuria. he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. I have thought about that uh, vow for some time. I think what happened is that he got a bad haircut in Corinth. And he vowed that he would uh, not visit any barbers there until he uh, got to Asia. And I, I think he probably took some sort of Nazarite vow. We really don't know what was behind this decision. But he went on then to Ephesus and left behind a growing, burgeoning, flourishing, exciting church. Probably thousands of people belong to this church. And it was located in one of the most difficult situations you can imagine. As I said, Corinth was a magnificent city. had all the advantages of culture and uh, sophistication. Uh, it was located very advantageously. If you picture in your mind what a map of Greece looks like, you know, Greece is a long peninsula that, that extends uh, southward down into the Mediterranean. And right at the very bottom of Greece, there is a peninsula that looks like someone's hand extending uh, to the south. That's called the Peloponnesus uh, Peninsula. And Corinth was located right here, just about where your wrist would be on the hand, on a little narrow isthmus, a little narrow neck of land about eight miles across. And they had, uh, they had uh, the advantage of two harbors, one on the east and one on the west. And all of the trade that came from Asia came into the Corinthian Gulf and then they put their boats on this wooden tramway and they hauled them with oxen across that little narrow neck of land and they put them in the gulf on the other side so they could go from the Aegean Sea to the Adriatic over to Italy. So all of the commerce flowing from Asia over to Italy and Rome, the, Rome, the heart of the Roman Empire and everything going east from Rome to Asia had to go right through Corinth. Today there's actually a canal. Nero laid out the canal. He never got it completed in, in, in modern times. They, they have dug a canal right through there so the ships don't have to go all the way around the Peloponnesus. But you can see see all the wealth and the power was accumulating right there in, in Corinth. Athens was just kind of a backwater at that time. Corinth was where the action was. That's where everything was going on. And just to the south of Corinth, there's a little hill about 1,800 feet high. It's called the Acre Corinth. If you look up there today, there, there's a Turkish castle on the top. But in those days, there was a temple up there to Aphrodite. And that, 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 that's where the best bands were. That's where the best food was. That's where the most beautiful women were. And we're told that there were, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of prostitutes, both male and female prostitutes, that uh, plied their trade up there in the in the temple of Aphrodite, and then during the during the evenings they would come down and, and walk the walk the streets. The, the, the city of Corinth was the most sex saturated city in the ancient world. There, there's a, a poet by the name of Aristophanes who coined a word to Corinthianize was to act like the Corinthians to, to fornicate and prostitutes all over the ancient world were called Corinthian girls because the prostitutes in Corinth set the pace for all other uh, prostitutions and and right in the middle of this wretched situation was this 
this growing church. See, what an exciting place to be. And uh, Paul spent a year and a half there planning the church, teaching the church, and he left it in the hands of Apollos. And Peter, also one of their teachers, and, and, and then he went over to Ephesus about 250 miles away. And, and, and we know there are at least four letters that he wrote. The first letter is lost. We, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to include it in our collection of writings. Uh, may still be in a post office somewhere in Ankara, Turkey, I don't know, waiting to be delivered, but it was lost. And uh, the, the letter we have is really the second letter that Paul writes. We know that there was one letter written that we don't have uh, because in chapter 5 he mentions it. I wrote to you, and he tells them a little bit of what he wrote, reminds them of what he had written. And, uh, but 1 Corinthians is the first book that we know anything about that we have in its entirety. Now let's take a look at that book, and we'll try to get started uh, this morning with a couple of uh, just introductory uh, comments about the introduction. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. <clears throat> Paul begins by uh, saying something about himself. Uh, letters in, 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 in these uh, ancient days... Uh, usually had the salutation first. That's uh, Actually, that's better than our practice because we have to look at the back page to see who wrote it. But they usually put their salutation first. And it always followed the same formula, A to B, greeting. And the Christians, as they begin to write letters, use the same formula. But they expanded on uh, each of those elements. And Paul does that in this uh, letter. Paul, he says, he is the author, the writer, the sender of the letter, Called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And Sosthenes, our brother. Remember Sosthenes? He was the fellow that they beat up in front of the, the judgment seat. So this letter comes from Paul and, and Sosthenes, the brother. You know, the well-known brothers. Is that, that fellow over there with all the knots on his head? That's, that's Sosthenes. And apparently Sosthenes had become a believer see, as a result of the, the, the beating that he took. Uh, that was the thing that pushed him, perhaps, toward uh, the Lord. It doesn't say much about Sosthenes except to refer to him as, as his brother, his brother in Christ. But he does say some significant things about himself. He says, I'm called an apostle. Now, he's not saying, call me an apostle. That, that, that's not the point. This is not a title that he's referring to. He's talking about the eternal call of God. He's talking about his vocation. This is what he did. Because God had called him to be, to be an apostle. And specifically, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that office is a unique office. There are no apostles today. No apostles. The, the apostles were men that were especially appointed by Jesus Christ, either before or after his resurrection. And Paul fell into that latter category. He saw the risen Lord, and he was commissioned by Jesus to be his apostle. There's been a lot of work done by scholars in the, uh, this concept of apostleship. The rabbis all had apostles. They used the Aramaic term shalia to refer to them. It, it's, it's the Aramaic equivalent of the word apostle. Shalia just means to send out, and apostles are people that are sent out. The Shalia and apostles were people that, that represented the rabbi. The rabbi sent them out with the same authority that they had. See, they spoke in their name. So when these apostles went out, 
They spoke with the same authority as Jesus. See, that's, that's why I've always been uh, uh, bothered a bit by red-letter Bibles, because people can gain the impression from that that Jesus' words are more authoritative than that of the apostles. But that's not true, see. Anything Paul writes has the same weight, the same authority as those things that Jesus said. So we can't take lightly what an apostle says. Paul writes to the folks in Thessalonica and he says, When you receive my words, you receive them not as the word of men, but as they really are the word of God. We say, who is this saying that his words are the words of God? Well, it's an apostle. That's who it is. See? And he has the right to say that. Now, Paul wore two hats. As a Christian, when he just is you know, everyday common garden variety Christian, when he put that hat on, he was very uh, lowly, very uh, uh, unassuming, very humble, sought obscurity, never pushed himself. Uh, but when he put on his apostle hat, he didn't apologize to anybody because he realized that God had called him to that position and he had a responsibility to represent Jesus Christ wherever he went. See? Now, the, the point I want to make is the same po- point that Paul wanted to make to the Corinthians is that he, his word had to be taken seriously. See? He was an apostle. Now, the problem in Corinth is that they did not uh, submit to Paul's leadership. They would not. There were other, as he calls them, super apostles in Corinth who were questioning Paul's validity because he was not one of the regulars. He wasn't one of the twelve, say. And so he has to defend his position as an authority. So that, he says of himself, I'm an apostle. Then he, he speaks to the Corinthians and he says, you're saints. You're saints. Verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. And by the way, it is God's church. It's not Paul's church. It's not Apollos' church. It's God's church, which, as Paul uh, uh, told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, it is the church which God purchased with his blood. That's the value that he places upon those that, uh, that form this, this group, what we call the, the Cole Community Church. He purchased us with his blood. And uh, he writes to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Same root underlies both those words, saints and, and sanctified. Paul is called an apostle. We're called saints. Do you realize that's what you are? That was the name that was used for believers, has been used for believers since the very beginning. Even in the Old Testament, they're referred to as holy ones or saints. And in the New Testament, you're referred to as a, as a saint. Now, you might find that hard to believe that you're a saint. You know, Mother Teresa, she's a, she's a saint, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a saint. See, I know what goes on in, inside my heart, and my family knows what goes on outside. And we struggle with that. How can I be a saint when I, don't, I act in such an unsaintly way? We always think of it in, in, a, in, re, in a relative way. One of my favorite stories uh, is about uh, two brothers that uh, they were notorious in town. Just cranky, mean-spirited, irascible uh, old men. Nobody could stand them. They were, they were crooked as they could be, and one of them died. 
And his brother came to the local uh, minister and he said, uh, I want you to do the funeral and, and I'm willing to give $5,000 to the church if you'll just call him a saint. And so the uh, pastor thought about that for a minute and then he, he, he agreed that he would do that. And uh, on the day of the funeral, he looked down at the casket and he says, Well, you all know old George, the meanest man in town. Nobody could trust him. Rassible, honorary old man. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> And, and, and that's the way we uh, often think about ourselves. You know, it's always in terms of comparison with, some, with someone else. But listen, I want you to understand that's really the way God looks at you. He sees you not in terms of what you are, but what you are to become by his grace. Now, um, uh, he moves on into uh, a word of thanksgiving in verse 4. This is the section that uh, Bill read to you. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. In other words, just as you know, that word confirm has the idea of guarantee. You know this is true. You know you've been enriched in all things. Um, So that, Verse 7, you are not lacking in any gift while you wait eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's, the, uh, again, this idea of not yet, not yet, that we see so often in, in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, and the Old Testament, too. It's true, but there's more coming, you see. You'll be preserved until the end. You'll be confirmed blameless. The word means irreproachable. That's the product that God wants to produce in, in every life. And he says some wonderful things about this uh, church. I told you this was a very large church. By this time, it was a very wealthy church. It was a very influential church. It probably had a lot of, uh, a lot of programs, a lot of ministries, a lot of things uh, going on, Bible studies and men's ministries and women's ministries and ministries to to youth and uh, outreach into the universities and a lot of things were going on and, and Paul gives thanks for all of those things. He says, first of all, I just, just want to call your attention to the grace of God that has been given to you. This was a church that understood the concept of grace. They'd been graced. They'd been gifted. There's no legalism in this church. You, you don't find in this book what you find in the book of Galatians, for example. This wasn't a church that was adding on to the scriptures. That's what legalism is. Legalism is going beyond what scripture says and making those statements binding upon us. But there was no legalism here. This was a church that thoroughly understood the the grace of God. And uh, secondly, he says, you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. The word for speech is the word that's used throughout uh, the the two books of Corinthians for verbal proclamation. And knowledge is the result of proclamation. In other words, said you, you've been wonderfully endowed with teachers. You have Apollos and you have Peter. and You have other men and women in your midst who are prophets and evangelists and teachers and they're faithfully proclaiming the word and, 
and uh, you're growing in knowledge and understanding of the Word. They had, they had uh, Bible study fellowship and precepts and small group uh, Bible studies and growth groups. These were people that uh, had an immense amount of knowledge of the Word. They were Bible-believing, Bible-toting uh, Christians who, who understood the, these great truths of, of Scripture. Uh, they knew what uh, the supralapsarian theory was. I don't, but they knew. And uh, uh, they had all of their eschatological charts drawn, and they knew uh, what was going to happen before the coming of, of Christ, and they knew what, was, what the tribulation was going to be like. And uh, they could tell you where Cain got his wife, and uh, they could tell you what, what happens to the person who's never heard the gospel when he dies. They had answers to all of these uh, issues that, that, uh, that, that puzzle us at, at, at times. They could explain why God permits uh, suffering. They had it all down. This was a church that had, uh, had everything. And uh, furthermore, he says in verse 7, you're awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were looking forward to his, to his uh, coming. But there was something terribly wrong in this church. Look at uh, verse 11 of chapter 1. There are quarrels among you. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there's immorality among you. And Immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. This man had apparently seduced his, his stepmother. And uh, it was being overlooked in the church. No one was addressing that, that issue. In chapter 6, verse 7, you have lawsuits with one another. They were dragging one another before, uh, before Roman law courts and trying to settle their their issues there rather than settle them as as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, ought to uh, work out their their problems there were divisions in the body there was gossip and rumor mongering and drunkenness and uh, uh, people uh, were defrauding one another business and cutting corners morally and uh, there was sexual immorality that was rife in the church, homosexuality and, and adultery and fornication. And Paul says, that, that's the way you used to be. But you know, instead of having an impact on the, on the city, the city is having an impact upon you. See? Now, there's, there's something very interesting about this introduction. I don't have time to, to dwell on this except to say that Paul is very careful in his choice of words. Notice what he says in verse 5. In everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all... What's the word? Knowledge. Knowledge. And you'll notice in chapter 1, as he develops this argument in chapter 2, he doesn't talk about knowledge. He talks about wisdom. Look, look at uh, verse uh, 21. The word wisdom occurs twice. Verse 24 the wisdom of God. Verse 5, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Verse 26, consider your calling, not many wise, not many noble, and so forth. Over and over again, Paul takes them away from this idea of knowledge to wisdom. 
because wisdom, you see, ought to be the result of instruction from the Word. And wisdom is skill at living. Wisdom is taking the knowledge that we have up here and translating it into our hearts so that it, really, so that it begins to, to touch, touch our lives and touch the lives of people around us. It's, it's taking what we learn on Sunday morning and, and beginning to apply it at lunch on Sunday afternoon and, and then throughout the day on Sunday and then on Monday morning when, when you go out into the marketplace. See, James would describe wisdom like this. We've been going through James in the men's study on on Wednesday morning, and I pointed out last week that James has, has one of the best definitions of wisdom. He says the wisdom is from above. It's first pure. That is, it's chaste. And fool around with pornography. He doesn't dwell on sexual fantasy. It's pure. And it's peaceable. He doesn't make waves. doesn't cause conflict. doesn't doesn't disrupt relationships. It, it seeks to, to make, make peace. It's gentle. It's a word that's used in the ancient world for wine. It's mellow. It's not acerbic. It's sharp. And, and uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's easy to be around. It doesn't, doesn't rub you the wrong way. It's easy to be entreated. And it's, it's a yielding spirit. That these people, they, they, will, they will reason with you. They don't get defensive. They don't try to protect themselves. They, they're, they're, they're easy to be around because they respond well. And so forth is a long list of qualities of life, what he calls the fruit of righteousness. And he says, people like that sow righteousness wherever, wherever they go. See, See the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole point that Paul is trying to make in this book is that you, you, you folks over there in Corinth have so much going for you. You have so much truth, but the truth isn't showing up in your life, see? It hasn't become a part of your, of your character and the way you relate to your spouse and the, the way you respond to your children and the way you do business and the way you treat the clerk who waits on you. and It doesn't show up in kindness and love and tenderness and courage in the face of moral, uh, moral issues. And, and if it doesn't touch the heart, see, it, it, it's, 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 it's not any good. It's just wasted motion. Paul's going to say this, the same thing when he gets around to writing 2 Timothy when he says, flee youthful lusts. And we say, oh, I know what that's talking about. That's, that's flee sexual temptation. There isn't one word in that chapter about sexual temptation. Not one word. What Paul is talking about is arguing over words, debating over the meaning of Scripture rather than cutting straight to the goal, which is the word he used, which is the goal of God-likeness, love for Christ and a reflection of, of his character. So he says, flee youthful lust. Well, what's that? Well, that's that youthful tendency that all of us uh, retain throughout life to argue about truth and hold it in suspension up here in theory, but not put it down in, into life, you see. So he says, flee youthful lust and follow after righteousness and godliness and peace with all of those who act out of a purified heart. See, that's the issue. If our heart has been purified, if we've really been sanctified, if we're on our way to being true saints, then we're going to hunger and thirst for that righteousness. That's the mark of authenticity is that we want it with all of our heart. And wanting it is nine-tenths of the, of the problem. If we want it, God will begin to 
granted to us. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And I want to leave you with Paul's final word, verse 9. God is faithful. That's one of Paul's favorite statements. He uses it three different times in his letters to the Corinthians. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship. That's the uh, same word that's used for James and John in their partnership, uh, their, their uh, fishing partnership. You're called into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. God is faithful. See, it's up to God to begin to translate that want into, into reality. There's no Turkish proverb that says, God has feet of wool and hands of steel. And what, what they mean is this. You, you may not hear him coming, but when he has, gets his hands on you, you can't get away. Say, he's faithful. He's faithful. He's going to see to it that we take the truth we know and we begin to inculcate it in our lives. And it may come through disappointment and, and pain and sorrow and fear, and it may even come through failure. But if, if we want it, if we want that righteousness, we'll have it. As George MacDonald says, God will worry us into obedience if he has to, but he'll take us there. God is faithful. See? Now, our, our responsibility is simply to cooperate with him in his faithful work. He who has begun a good work in you, Paul said, will complete it until the day of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we want to thank you that you're the kind of Lord who hounds us and, uh, and who will not let us get away with our disobedience, who will bring disappointment and, and pain and fear and loss into our lives if necessary in order to shape us and mold us and make us into the men and women that you've intended from all eternity that we shall be. There is no escaping your love. And we thank you for that. And as we read this book of 1 Corinthians, Lord, may it touch our church, not in the sense that we become more knowledgeable, but that our lives become conformed to the one in whom we sh- with whom we share this uh, this partnership our lord jesus christ in whose name we pray amen